Hello, and welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show focused on our oceans. My name is John Sherburn, and I'm the show's producer. The Blue Earth Podcast is brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization focused on developing ocean ambassadors and future leaders. You can find us on social media at Future Frogmen and at futurefrogmen.org. Our host and president is Richard Hyman. Thank you, and remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Let's get into it. Yeah, let's let's get started. Uh, just a few uh, opening remarks. Uh, Brendan, thanks for the opportunity to speak with your class. And, and uh, Demi, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Demi was recently on a Future Frogmen conversation that we did talking about NOAA. Demi is the Northeast Regional Coordinator of NOAA's Marine Debris Program. And uh, we had a great conversation with her. That is available to you on our website, uh, futurefrogmen.org. So uh, you might wanna check that out as a follow-up if you haven't seen it already in some of our other videos. And please uh, please consider subscribing uh, on the website so you can uh, learn more about the things we're doing. And if anyone wants to get involved with what we're doing, we'd love to hear from you. Brendan has my contact information and you can also uh, reach me uh, through the website. And Brendan is, uh, Demi, Brendan, as I think you know, is the science department chairman at the Grower School. And sounds like an awesome class you have there, Brendan. So with that, uh, why don't I uh, turn it over to you, Demi, and you could maybe tell us a little bit more about yourself and uh, your background and what you do uh, with NOAA. Yeah, absolutely. It's so nice to talk to all of you. I am the Northeast Regional Coordinator for the NOAA Marine Debris Program. Um, our mission is to prevent uh, the adverse effects of marine debris in the ocean and Great Lakes. So... Uh, we do that through five different pillars. That's prevention, coordination, research, emergency response, and regional coordination, which is where I come in. So there's 10 of us on the team, and we sit in NOAA offices all around the country. Um, so we have a California regional coordinator for where you guys are. We have a Pacific Northwest regional coordinator. I am the Northeast regional coordinator, so I get to help with projects in Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. So any partners that are doing um, marine debris work, whether that's research or removal or education in those five states, I help make sure that we're all working together towards common goals and that we're not reinventing the wheel over and over and try to get everybody on the same page and connect to the partners that can help them most and just make sure that marine debris is on track in New England. And I am really excited to talk to you. I was just saying that a lot of outreaches and events are unfortunately being canceled because of the pandemic. So I think this is a great opportunity for everyone to just be online and still reach out. And um, I have typed up some answers to the questions that I got already. So I'll, I'll unfortunately be reading from my screen, but I'll do my best to answer your questions. And if there's anything that I don't answer today that you think of later, your teacher has my email address. So feel free to reach out absolutely anytime. I'm happy to talk to you. Thank you so much. That's really generous of you. And uh, thanks to both you and Richard for your time today. Um, kids seem very, very aware of their role in, in both the good and bad and, and the, their contributions to preserving natural res resources and natural wonders and also some of the things we're doing that we could um, we could do better. Very thankful to you both for your um, time and energy today and um, kids have generated some really good questions I think. So Brendan uh, maybe I could yeah. ask you if you wouldn't mind uh, just tell us a little bit more about yourself your background and then and then your role and then we'll roll right into the questions. Perfect. Okay. So um, I grew up here in San Diego. I went to UC San Diego and got an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. Um, one of the last classes I took was actually a marine biochemistry class that really, really 
seemed like a great yoking together of so many different things that I'm passionate about. Um, I grew up surfing. I grew up in the water, body surfing, surfing, beachgoer, sailing, um, all the above, and feel very, very, uh, very much glad that the beaches are closed right now under social distancing uh, mandates, but definitely am missing those resources. I've been uh, teaching at the Grower School for 14 years. So I came in um, pretty much fresh out of my undergraduate degree. And I've been, I've taught so many classes under the sun, math, science, health, PE, you name it. For the last five years, I've been teaching chemistry, uh, which is definitely my wheelhouse, but I've been teaching marine bio for about seven years, I think now, uh, maybe eight. And I really, really love um, all the stewardship opportunities that we're participating in. We do, um, we're members of the Surfrider Foundation's Blue Water Task Force. So we do not so much now, but we have been doing water tests for ocean quality with different bacteria levels. We're very much able to get to the beach often with uh, our proximity to the ocean. We're only a mile away, less than a mile away from the beaches. So we definitely do a lot of field trips um, under normal circumstances. And I love working with these kids. These are, these are really multi-talented people, um, a lot of passions, very artistic, scientific, um, great writers, and um, feel very fortunate to also serve as a science department chair to kind of help usher in new ideas and, and really promote student work. Sounds great, Brendan. Thanks very much. Uh, so why don't you guide us however you want to run through the questions, Brendan? Yeah, so the students have kind of identified um, their questions. So I figured it would just be best to, to encourage them to ask them in this order. So let's go on down the list. Uh, who had our first question here? That was me. Um, I was going to ask, how does climate change affect large debris events and kind of how debris is entering the ocean? That's a really good question. And I think, unfortunately, my answer to a lot of these questions is like, wow, great question. We're still figuring that out. So if you hear me saying that over and over, it's just because the science on marine debris is relatively new. And we are still figuring a lot of things out, especially with climate change, because it's adapting and evolving all the time. But I do have some thoughts about climate change and marine debris that I can share. So first of all, changing wind and weather patterns is going to affect our ability to predict where the debris is accumulating in the marine environment. So it will make it more difficult for us to assess where it is and therefore even more difficult than it already is to clean it up. It's also going to make it challenging for us to understand which species might be the most heavily impacted because of where the debris is changing either geographically or within the water column, it could affect different species of animals depending on where their habitat is. So all of that is kind of in question and in flux. Um, the other thing to think about is precipitation. If we have lots more heavy precipitation events that generally wash debris from cities and um, kind of centers of human populations out through the sewage and the wastewater systems into the ocean, that could cause kind of acute, severe marine debris influx to go into the ocean all at once. Um, the other thing to think about too is as polar ice caps melt, it's going to make the ocean less salty and therefore less dense. So the plastics that are in the ocean might sink more readily than they are currently doing now, um, which again, will make it harder for us to find them, harder to clean it up, harder to know what they're affecting. Um, so I think all of that is still kind of, we're trying to understand the relationship and how it's evolving, but I think all of that is, is things on the radar. All right, thank you. Our next question had to do with um, how climate change affects debris. So maybe that ties in with your first response. Yeah, yeah, I think all the same answers, just um, wind, whether it's sinking, where it's located, um, mm -hmm. how quickly it's photodegrading in the ocean, because of course you guys know plastics don't biodegrade, they just photodegrade with the sunlight and the wave action. So if those 
factors are altered, it might change how quickly the plastics are breaking up into smaller and smaller pieces um, and making even more microplastics. So all of that is still stuff we need to figure out. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a complicated puzzle. I'll turn the attention to our third question. What do you suggest we can do as an audience to help this issue? And by this issue, I mean the large debris event. Yeah, that's a, the most important question, right? Good, good question. Um, and I think, of course, it's going to be up to individuals. You know, there's definitely action that needs to be taken at the government level and at the industry level to help with the amount of plastics that are being produced in the first place, but it really is going to come down to each individual and the small actions, especially students. You guys are the power and people generally listen to students much more than they listen to adults. So I think take everything that you learn and show examples of how you want things to change. Um, join us in the marine debris field, start working on the science and conservation. Anytime that I have the chance to talk with high school or college students, I always talk about our marine debris action plan, which you can look up the California one as well. I think in California, they call it the ocean litter strategy. Um, but what we generally do in each of the regions as a marine debris program is we get all the partners that work in our region together and we create these action plans. And they're a list of generally like 70 to 100, 120 actions and different partners sign up to do different pieces of it. And it's a way for us to track progress across the region and make sure that we're all working together. They're usually five years at a time. So every five years we'll generate a new plan um, so getting involved in those, seeing real world examples of how people are dealing with these issues and finding solutions and working together, I think all of that is, is stuff that you guys have the power to do. You're obviously smart and um, well versed in the science. So I think you should use all of those skills to your advantage and to the advantage of all the rest of us too. I'm not sure if this was also someone else's question, but um, so my question to you was, what is like one of the biggest achievements you've done, like you're most proud of in your line of work? I know that your line of work is like, there's so much going on, so much new information, but what is one of your, it could be something small, just something you're so super happy with and you're super proud of, of what you were able to get done. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question also, right? Because being proud of this work is, is really important and being proud of any of the work you're doing and is important, especially with issues like this, where it's kind of, heavy and we have to learn about horrible things that are happening in the world every day and it's getting worse and worse. Finding things that make you driven to keep doing it are really important. And for me right now, the thing I, that I thought of first when I read this question is our zero waste initiative. We had just started in 2018, we had an international conference in San Diego called the Sixth International Marine Debris Conference. And we were able to make that whole event, which was for over 700 participants, zero waste, which was really important. So we took away any kind of single-use utensils or napkins or plates or anything else that would have been used at the conference for coffee breaks or snack breaks or even passing out programs to people and we made it zero waste and it actually got a lot of attention and was really well received so we took that idea and kind of ran with it and thought that of course NOAA who is responsible for protecting the oceans should have a zero waste initiative as well and we started really small in the marine debris program we put together this kind of um, like a tote bin that you would I don't know, put your Christmas decorations in kind of thing. And we put plates and napkins and coffee cups in there. And then we shipped it around to all the different regional coordinators so that every time we were holding a meeting, we had all those supplies ready for us. And just last year, with using that one kit only, we saved 13,000 items from going to landfill. So we submitted that idea to leadership higher up than us in NOAA and said, this is really something that should be across the whole division. 
and they love the idea. So we started a zero waste initiative across the whole National Ocean Service. So moving forward, we're starting to make all of our meetings zero waste. We just applied for a grant that will allow us to purchase enough supplies for 45 of those kits. And we can put them in NOAA offices all over the country, which I'm super, super proud of. So I'm really happy to see that moving forward. And I think it's a way for us to kind of set an example for everyone that we work with in making things zero waste is not impossible. And if anybody should be doing it, it should be us. And so that's something I'm super proud of right now. Yeah, that's really amazing that you were able to do that with like such a big group of people, because I know I went to the... I don't know what the club was exactly called, but it was like an environmental club at our school. And I know that one of our things was how do we bring the waste on at our school? Right. And like even with a small school, maybe all the people at the school is equivalent to like 200 people. We ourselves were having a lot of trouble doing that. So for you to be able to do that in such a big place is amazing. It's really challenging, right? What's your guys' kind of cafeteria or lunch system like? Do you have reusable supplies in there? Well, we have like our trays are compostable or whatever, but like the silverware and stuff is plastic. I think it might be recycled plastic, but it's still plastic and it's single use. Sure. We have compost, recycle, and uh, waste, but environmental... Uh, class has to sort through the trash sometimes, but I see Amanda shaking her head there. We have a representative from the environmental science class who once Isabella, once you're done with your, um, Oh yeah, I'm done. Uh, Amanda, do you want to chime in? Cause I know you're on the front lines of that. Yeah. The, it's a little bit frustrating because a lot of people like aren't sorting their right. trash. So we have to mm-hmm. go in and do it after the fact. Right. And then also the thing about the compostable trays is that technically they are, but it's really hard to get it like processed and shredded down to the point where that's like feasible at our school. Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I usually advise people if they're looking at, they, you know, we get a lot of emails about compostable trays like that or compostable utensils. And unless you have access to an industrial composting facility, those things generally aren't processed correctly. So that can be challenging too. Fantastic. And, and to give kind of a, a zoom out on the history of plastics use at our school, um, we've definitely kind of been very mindful of, of single use. I think about 10 years ago, we switched to um, not having plastics on campus as far as water bottles. Um, we've encouraged kids to bring their own uh, reusable water bottle. We've also, with respect to single use plastics at our, uh, our vendor who, who provides lunch to a lot of the students, those were made of cornstarch, but we only just started to unearth the fact that it is difficult to process some of these things locally. So yeah. we've encouraged, and Amanda, correct me, uh, chime in here. Um, we've really encouraged people to bring their own um, fork, spoon, and knife every day for lunch. And a lot of yeah. kids have gotten on board with bamboo or metal, kind of like as a, as a, cool, as a cool showing of support. Yeah, that's awesome. And I don't want to take us too far down this rabbit hole because I know we have other questions, but something that has been kind of like pinging in my mind recently and that maybe you guys can think about too um, is in the current context of this whole pandemic. Unfortunately, some states and cities and towns like the town I live in in Massachusetts, um, Gloucester, has a plastic bag ban. And that was lifted in light of the pandemic. And actually, reusable bags were banned from our grocery stores because people are so nervous about bringing things in from your home into public Mm -hmm. places. So I think the way that we message our 
um, reusable supplies and single-use plastics and the whole zero waste initiative is going to shift once we can all kind of go back to work and go back to school. So uh, that's something to kind of think about as well, but we can, we can chat about that in our separate conversation. Yeah. I know Mia is absent today, but she had a great question, which was, she framed it as what's the smallest thing we can do to aid in climate change? I, I guess what she meant is what can we do on an individual level that has great impact? Yeah, that's a great question. And my work is less focused on climate change specifically. So I don't know if I'm the best person to say the smallest thing that will give you the biggest impact. Um, but right. I really think that any small change you can commit to is important. Like if you can do a meatless Monday or use public transportation, of course, once it's safe or try turning off some of your electronics sometimes and just do that on a consistent routine basis, those small things, baby steps are going to make the biggest difference. Excellent. And then someone had a question kind of with respect to that um, and with respect to ocean debris with what's the best thing we can do. Uh, Brendan kind of already phrased it, but like it's what can we do from home on an individual level to stop the debris from getting into the ocean? Because I know that that's kind of the place where it needs to happen because cleaning it up is hard. Right. Absolutely. So um, I think this might speak to another question as well about misconceptions, but something that's really challenging in trying to figure out solutions, right, is that even if you're doing all the right things, even if you're composting everything that's compostable and recycling properly and throwing out your waste properly, there's no way for us as individuals to guarantee that the waste we put into that bin is going to the correct place because there's sources of error in transportation, in it blowing onto a street and going down a sewer and it blowing from a landfill and it being put into the improper place and the recycling, like you were saying, being contaminated by other things that people aren't reading carefully or um, wish cycling, which is thinking like, oh, I'll just throw it in there. Hopefully it's recyclable and that will work. And then it contaminates the whole thing. Um, so unfortunately, even if you're doing absolutely everything within your power right to make sure the waste you produce is handled correctly, there's no guarantee that it's not becoming marine debris. So the most important thing we can do is scale back the amount of things that you're using and creating waste all together. And that can feel really daunting to think about overnight, like what all the things you throw away in a day, especially the single use plastic type of things and how to cut those out. So my advice is always to take one little step at a time. Think about something in your life that maybe you can make a shift, make it. And then if it works for you, awesome, move on to the next thing. And if it doesn't figure out a new way, and I, I'm still working with this personally, I drink a thousand cups of tea a day. And my whole team was on me a couple of weeks ago because there was a paper published about how there's microplastics in tea bags. So they were like, Demi, you need to do something. And they're all on my case about it. So I got a strainer and the loose leaf tea leaves. And now I brew my tea from loose leaf tea. And that's just something that I can do that was easy for me to switch. And it reduces the amount of waste that I am personally responsible for. So I think small kind of steps like that, that you can think about in your individual life are going to do the best things for the ocean. Excellent. Thank you so much. You know, and I, I apologize, you guys, I, I skipped a really great question about challenges and challenges you face who framed that question oh that was me gabe you want to ask your question yeah uh, what is the biggest challenge that you faced in your line of work yeah that's a really good question right so i think whether it's marine debris or protecting endangered species or any other kind of um, conservation role that you could take on the biggest challenge is behavior change 
what we basically are, we're agents of behavior change. All of conservation kind of boils down to that, right? Whether we're talking about using less single-use plastics or changing the way you fish or changing the way you boat or changing the way you live your everyday life, most people make the choices that they make because they're convenient or they're easy or they're cost-effective. And sometimes things that we need to suggest are not any of those things. They're harder, they're more expensive, and they take more time. Um, so I think learning the science of behavior change and how to message things properly and consider the audience you're speaking to is the biggest challenge. And if we all knew how to change behaviors, we would do it quickly and then we could all get different jobs, right? So I think learning, learning behavior change and kind of the social science aspects behind conservation are the biggest challenge. Excellent. Yeah, behavioral changes. I think you have to kind of make it sleek and, and attractive and, and stylish in a way. And that you know, with, when I think of water bottles, you know, in the last, what, five or six years, they've really come out with some cool branding of, you know, the double ins insulated water bottles, which have existed for, you know, decades, many, many decades, but, but now they're cool. And, and I definitely, think, <laughs> I, you know, I like taking around my uh, hydro flask. Bouncing down, some, a, a student had a question about kinds of trash. Okay. So what kind of trash that we might not think is a problem that causes significant damage? there was this huge outcry about plastic straws or like how much of that is reality and what's might the average person not think of that really does damage the ocean a lot. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think to a certain extent, it kind of depends on where you are. So for New England, I would say it's probably the trash that we find on our beaches about 50% consumer debris, like straws and coffee cups. Um, cigarette butts, things like that. And 50% is fishing gear because of course we have an enormous lobster industry um, and that's a lot of the trash that we see. So I know immediately I can see a tiny fragment that's a millimeter big of any piece of a lobster pot and I know what it is because I see it so often. So, um, you know, I think it just, again, it comes back down to like being super conscious of the things that you're using and throwing away so that they don't have the chance to become marine debris because no matter where you are, consumer debris, like, things that we would use in our everyday life are going to be a part of it. It just depends on what other industries are going on in the marine environment in your geographic location to determine the rest of the gear. So we in New England work with the lobstermen a lot about, you know, if they're considering replacing any of the plastic pieces of their cages with other materials, how they can prevent their traps from becoming derelict in the first place, like how to rig up their lines and check them every so often and prevent them from becoming lost at sea so they don't wash up and become marine debris. And I think I would say, I'll have to ask Sherry, she's our California regional coordinator, but I know her and I have talked about the pots and traps issue before because she has a lot of um, crabbers that she works with as well. So it depends if it's um, heavy shipping area or having fishing area um, or just a city center like outside of New York City or Boston, um, it's, the trash will vary depending on where you are. Makes sense. Our next question had to do with small changes and their efficacy. Do small changes in lifestyle intended to avoid producing waste actually help in a measurable way? I would say yes. I think they do. And I think I'm not um, well-versed on the studies, but I think there have been studies put into place in cities and towns that have things like straw bans or plastic bag bans. And if they see a reduction in the amount of debris on their beaches before and after, and I think they have. And um, so even though it feels silly and maybe dragging your metal straw around to Starbucks with you doesn't feel like you're saving the world, you definitely are. And every, you know, it, it feels like an individual effort, but think about even if just everyone in your school did it too, that's a huge amount of debris every day that could be saved. I have a 
kind of like a follow-up question. Do you think one of the, um, from those studies that they see of the cities or countries that are banning certain things, it's more of like, because of the ban, like let's say you're going to the store and there's no more, like I forget where it was, but there was no more plastic bags and people were bringing random, like they were bringing wagons to the stores and like making it, not a joke out of it, but making it fun. Like mm -hmm. it makes you more aware and you're like, oh, maybe don't get this plastic bottle. Or like, it's not just the law itself of what it's banning, but it's like the awareness of what that law does. Do you think that has right. a big aspect of it? I do, of course. And I think a lot of it's social too. Like if you go to the store and everyone has their reusable bag except for you, and then you're kind of shamed for being the one that has a plastic water bottle or has a plastic bag or isn't following the norm of just being responsible and taking a little bit more um, seriously the sustainability issues then. Yeah, I think it's the social pressures. I think it's um, raising awareness. And I also think people who help conduct beach cleanups become a lot more aware too, because it, sometimes you can be very blind to it until you train your brain how to see all the plastics on the beach. And then once you can see them, you kind of can't unsee them. So taking people to the beach who have conducted a lot of beach cleanups, all they see is trash, all they see is plastic. And then every time they go to touch a plastic item, they're much more aware of it. So I think getting people involved where it's possible, of course, um, and hands-on efforts is really, really effective too. Yeah, I just realized once they close the beaches, I'm like, this would be the perfect time to do beach cleanups because no one's there to do more. Right. Yeah, interesting thought. I mean, the, the cost-benefit analysis of being out there right now, it's, it's complicated to be sure. Our next question had to do with uh, your partnership, Demi, with Future Frogmen. My question was just for your partnership with Future Frogmen, are you planning on working with them on extended projects that go beyond just submitting data to NOAA? Um, basically, in other words, like, are there just any future projects you guys are planning? Yeah, good question. And Richard, you can feel uh, free to jump in here as well. And I would say absolutely. I mean, we work with partners in a lot of different ways. Um, one of the main ways that we work with our partners in each region is through our grant funding program. So the Marine Debris Program offers two federal grant opportunities every year. So removal every year, and then we alternate between prevention and research. So people will submit applications to get funding from the Marine Debris Program to carry out their projects. And then we partner with them over the life of that grant, which is usually two to three years, um, and make sure that everything is kind of on track and working in its course. We also are involved in outreach efforts like this one. So if we can continue working with our partners to connect with different students, I think that's a really important way, probably the most important way that we partner with people. And of course, like I mentioned, we have our action plans in each of the regions as well. So if different partners sign up to take on different actions in their action plan, we're constantly in contact with them. So there's lots of ways that the Marine Debris Program tries to engage different partners in our region. So I don't know, Richard, if you want to add anything to that. Uh, I'll, Jake, I'll just add that it's a relatively new relationship. Uh, I met Demi last fall. We worked together during a conference at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts, near Boston, and uh, we've been staying in touch since. And I would love to further and grow the relationship and the partnership. So I think there, there are other possibilities that Demi just outlined a few that, that may fit with our capabilities. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the future, pun intended. <laughs> And we have two uh, more questions that we generated ahead of time, having to do with sources of debris. What, are, what do you find as the major sources of, of marine debris? Um, 
not only the types, but where are these primarily coming from? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's mostly identified as two source categories, ocean-based or land-based, right? So ocean-based debris items are those that are either dumped, swept, or blown from vessels or stationary platforms at sea. And this is things like derelict fishing gear or abandoned vessels or shipping or oil rig equipment, that sort of thing that would generate from the ocean. But the majority of marine debris is from land-based sources, um, and that's from intentional or unintentional littering or jumping into streams and rivers, um, water discharges, waste mismanagement practices, um, and that's how most of the trash gets out into the ocean. So um, a huge portion of the debris that is in the water is, of course, plastics. I think that's the, the kind of debris that gets the most attention. And especially because, like we were saying before, plastics can photodegrade. So over time, they break up into lots and lots of pieces. They accumulate in the ocean's gyres. We hear mostly about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch because there's been a lot of media around that. But there's actually five ocean gyres, of course. Um, debris is accumulating in all of them. Um, and... You know, the, the questions I think we need to be concerned about as far as how that's going to affect ocean ecosystems is ingestion. And that's, of course, just animals physically ingesting the plastics, but also are there additives or chemicals or coloring agents or plasticizers that are leaching or sorbing from those pieces as they're ingested or after they're ingested? And we don't know the composition of all the plastic. So plastic is not just plastic. Of course, there's foam and there's filmed plastic. There's many, many different compositions of plastics and we don't really know how those different compositions are affecting animals differently. So there's lots of sources and there's lots of questions that we still have about what's out there and what it's doing, what are the long-term consequences to animals in the ocean, the ecosystem as a whole, and to human health as well. Sure. And, you know, we've been studying this, especially folks in honors at this point in the class, uh, both bioaccumulation and biomagnification and kind of mm -hmm. teasing apart the two different concepts. And, and it just sounds like a really complicated uh, bit of work ahead for, for those who are stewards of the environment to try to figure out, okay, how are these things accumulating or magnifying um, in the food chain? And, and what are these different chemicals doing? Right, So we have um, one more question, which yokes together the non-living with the living once more, um, having to do with indicators. Hi, yeah, so... Um, how do you use like indicator species in your studies? Like plastic is affecting animals and, and such like that. Is there anything indicator species are doing to help you out? That's a really good question. And I think the answer is we're still trying to figure out which are indicator species for plastic pollution. So an example I'll point to is a lot of our research partners in New England are using shellfish, um, oysters, and scallops to see how they are either selectively ingesting or ingesting and then ingesting um, fibers and microplastic pellets. Um, and I think the science is, this is not published work yet, but I think the science is starting to point to shellfish may not be great indicator species of how much plastic is present in an environment because it turns out they can reject a lot of the plastics that they ingest through their pseudofeces. So they might not be, if you just catch a scallop and look inside and say, oh, this must be a representation of how much plastic is there in the place where that scallop lived, it might not be because they're spitting a lot of it out. Um, whereas birds, um, like albatross, can ingest all the plastic and then they've been observed feeding it to their chicks and they have no distinction between what's plastic and what's actually food for them. So they might be a better indicator of, of what's in the area. So I think we are trying to find indicator species, but I think there's still some questions about um, who those might be. Yeah, and I'm sure that's complicated because, you know, albatross are available in certain climates and given their behaviors, it's useful, but 
it would probably be great to be able to have have multiple indicator species for any given region because of differences therein and behavior and ingestion, et cetera. And it's complicated. Right. Very complicated. Yeah. You said before um, about working with lobster fishers and mm -hmm. changing their materials that they use. Are they compliant with it? Like, do they change? That is a good question. And some are very open to it. I think they, they're heavily invested in marine conservation as well because that's their livelihood, right? They have a vested interest in making sure that the ocean is healthy because they want to be lobstermen. Um, so some of them are really open to change and open to cleanups and they help with removal efforts and are totally on board. And some of them, as you might imagine, are just salty New Englanders who are very stuck in their ways and um, require a little bit more behavior change science, <laughs> I'll say. Excellent question, Kevin. Really important to know if, if, who's on board and who isn't. Is your group trying to go at this from a legal aspect, trying to get laws passed where like fishermen have to use a certain protocol, they have to use a certain product that's eco-friendly? Are you trying to go at it from a legal point? That is a really good question. Um, because I work for the federal government, we don't really have a, a political stance and we don't, uh, the marine debris program specifically doesn't um, generate laws or enforce laws. Yeah. Um, but we have advocacy partners, of course, that um, advocate for certain changes. Um, right now in New England, this is a whole other topic that we can talk about at a different time, but there's a lot of talk about changing uh, lobster rules in New England right now because of right whale entanglements, the vertical lines that go from the surface buoy down to the first pot. Um, are thought to be causing a lot of right whale entanglements. They're of course critically endangered. So um, NOAA Fisheries, which is a different division of NOAA, is working on the recommendations of changing those rules, but the marine debris program doesn't do anything with law or policy. Okay, perfect. Are there any other questions that came to light? How do you think this um, pandemic is going to affect the way marine debris is? Because there's a lot of single-use plastics I know going around with like uh, rubber gloves and masks and things like that, but it's all very necessary. Is there, what can you imagine coming from that? You know what, that's a great question. And we've been thinking about it a lot. And I think it's just going to take some more thought. And I mean, I would love to, you know, tell people that it's still safe to use your, your reusables and um, learning how long the virus lives on, for example, cloth and plastic and comparing those two things. Even how we, like you're saying, there's gloves and masks littered everywhere, um, how we conduct beach cleanups. Like, is it safe for anybody to just go to the beach and pick up things they see? I don't know. And I think right now, I mean, my family has been personally affected by the virus. I'm sure some of you guys have too. And I am just very, very cautious and not, I don't think I'm in a place yet to give anybody guidance about how to do this best. So Unfortunately, for the time being, I think everyone just needs to keep themselves safe and follow the CDC guidelines for what is safe and what isn't. And then once we kind of come out of this, um, I'm sure that my program and many others will kind of sit down and talk about how we can move forward and how people can still choose sustainability in a time of so much uncertainty. The, I mean, there's, there's good news, right, in that there's less people out traveling and definitely visiting beaches and doing other recreational activities that could cause marine debris. So we could see a decline in, the, in those types of things, but definitely an increase in the number of single-use things, especially medical single-use um, items that are being used right now that we'll all have to consider. Some question, because I think there's definitely the assumption that with uh, 
decrease industry, decrease travel, that it's automatically going to mean that this is a good time for the oceans. But it could be more complicated than that. And, and what I, I just appreciate so much about these students is that they're always taking, thinking about how their behaviors, um, they're really mindful of how their behavior affects larger systems, but also trying to think about larger systems insofar as what they can do to, to make some good small changes. Right. Well, you guys, I just want to thank uh, Ms. Fox and Mr. Hyman. Thank you both so much for kind of brokering this conversation today. Um, I'm sure we'll have further questions that percolate up, but we're really appreciative. So thank you guys both. You're and welcome. best of luck to your family too. Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. And you guys too. Thank you, Demi. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Klaus. Great questions. It was fun to be with you today. Everybody take care and be safe, okay? We hope you liked today's Blue Earth podcast. Thanks for listening. Wherever you're hearing us, please rate and review the show and check out our website for upcoming and previous podcasts and more. We're now releasing the show on a weekly basis. So until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Have a nice one.